CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. The World Cup is the biggest and most lucrative sporting event on the planet, and it's put the tiny but oil-rich Middle Eastern country of Qatar under intense scrutiny. As part of W5's World Cup special, Omar Sachedina explores life in a country that is heavily criticized for its human rights record, alleged exploitive labor laws, and its control of the press. For the first time, the quest for soccer's most coveted prize is unfolding in the Middle East. A million fans, 32 teams, and one glorious golden trophy. The fight isn't just between countries. Qatar's battle is also internal, caught in a clash between the traditional and the modern. The Gulf state is about twice the size of Prince Edward Island. Qatar! And in the 12 years since its successful World Cup bid, it's undergone a metamorphosis into a booming metropolis at a cost of $300 billion, the most expensive World Cup in history. That doesn't even include the entire cost of the seven brand new stadiums and a refurbished one, reportedly adding another six and a half billion. The human cost has been far greater. Human Rights Watch, a non-governmental organization dedicated to investigating and reporting abuses around the world, recorded these testimonies. This is Nanda Kali Nepali. Her husband moved from Nepal to be a driver in Qatar to provide for his family. My husband used to come for two months, every two years. This time, only his dead body came after he last visited Nepal. <laughs> My husband was a source of support. Without him, who do I rely on? This migrant worker, also from Nepal, was too scared to be identified. He told Human Rights Watch that Qatar initially had nothing built. Now there are towers everywhere. We built those towers. In the heat, we were forced to work with face covers. We were drenched in sweat. We poured sweat from our shoes. He says his son could not even recognize him when he returned home. Almost 90% of Qatar's 3 million people are foreign-born. Many of them chose to work there as cheap critical labor to get Doha ready to welcome the world. They often live in areas tourists will never see. This video shows the inside of one of the many compounds, cramped and overcrowded, sacrifices workers make to support families back home in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. Then turn left onto 161. We drove to one of these compounds just outside the city to talk with some of the residents. Getting them to speak about their living and working conditions is a struggle because they fear retaliation from their employers and the potential for punishment from the state. When they do speak, they ask not to be identified. 
This domestic worker from Kenya only wanted us to use her first name, Mary. Babysitting and some minor cleaning. They had like two kids. I was taking care of two kids. She worked six days a week, earning the equivalent of $400 Canadian a month. And she says the family she was working for even took her passport away from her. I felt like I didn't have my own freedom. And they told me that we have to keep your passport. By during that time, I didn't know it wasn't right for them to keep my passport. I didn't have an understanding about that and all the rules. It was later on that I came to realize that they are not supposed to keep my passport. Freedom isn't the only issue facing many migrant workers. Hundreds claim they were forced to work for little pay. How does such a wealthy country not pay workers what they deserve? Because they can. McGill University's Francois Crepeau visited Qatar shortly after it won the bid as former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the human rights of migrants. For jobs that have no social capital, like construction jobs or domestic workers, exploitation of the migrant worker is the key. And if the employer asks for you to work seven days a week, you will. If they ask you to work 12, 12 hours a day, you will, because the alternative is going back home empty-handed. Is it modern-day slavery? It's been called many names. Modern slavery is often simply being put into conditions which prevent you from having any other option but doing what you're told. And to make matters worse, many workers incurred punishing debts to recruiters and for travel just to work in Qatar. Very often, most of those workers have either borrowed money or sold something. They have debts in order to pay for coming to Qatar, pay the intermediaries that provided them with jobs. They, they are called recruitment fees. And so there's a huge burden on them even before they step foot out of their country? There is a financial burden. So their vulnerabilities are being preyed on. It, their vulnerability is actually constructed. It's built, it's, it's organized so that they will enter this labor world with their hands tied behind their back. That's, that's how it's organized. Those recruitment fees are now illegal, but still exist in practice. There have been labor reforms, such as the establishment of minimum wage, but that only took effect last year. Workers still can't unionize. Often, inspectors are unable to speak to workers directly because they don't share a common language. And when a death of a foreign worker occurs on the job in Qatar, even the United Nations admits seeking compensation is often difficult and confusing. It was found that indeed the system as it was was contributing to exploitation of workers and the labor inspection systems and the complaints mechanisms were inadequate in resolving the issues of migrant workers. Max Tunyon has been working closely with the government of Qatar. He is the head of the UN-funded International Labor Organization that opened here in 2018, eight years after the successful bid. For all the migrant workers who've lost their lives or who have been injured between 2010 until those changes were made, what recourse do they have? What recourse do their families have? Now, when it comes to you know, what happened to, to the workers um, who suffered, whether it's uh, wage abuses or tragically lost their lives or suffered injuries, 
There is now a government fund that has been established uh, and they've agreed to make it more flexible to compensate accidents or wage claims that happened going back uh, into previous years, not just for those uh, abuses that are taking place now. And so every family member is able to collect with ease? It's going to be very difficult to attribute uh, accidents, injuries, diseases to work, uh, especially when it's done retroactively. From the ILO side, there need to be more investigations of deaths that may in fact be work-related but are currently not categorized as such. So this is one area where we do need to see more progress. And so is there a plan to make sure that families are able to make claims from abroad? Uh, as of yet, there is no concrete plan as to how workers can do this. The Guardian newspaper claims there have been 6,500 worker deaths in Qatar in the past decade. The most significant factor, the intense heat. But Tunyon disputes the reported figure. FIFA, along with the government of Qatar, also claim the number is inflated. And it's also important to note that the South Asian population in Qatar is extremely large and diverse. They are not only in the construction sector, they are in every sector of the economy and across all income levels. They make up 50 to 60% of the overall population. So it's misleading to suggest that all South Asians are dying because of work or because of construction or because of the World Cup. It's not just Qatar's labor record that spawned anger. Two days before the summer games, there was a surprise ban on alcohol sales in stadiums. Even though local organizers had insisted alcohol would be allowed just a few weeks earlier. And it's not just a ban at the matches. Even at restaurants, coffee, water and soft drinks have replaced glasses of wine and bottles of beer. Do you wish you could drink? No, it's not a big problem. I lose. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. I, I miss to drink some beer, but okay, it's okay. Thank football you. Football is our addiction, not beer. Football, <laughs> always football. There are also restrictions on free speech. Publicly criticizing Islam may be criminally prosecuted. Same goes for criticism of the Qatari government. Public displays of affection among couples, like holding hands, and being in same-sex relationships can trigger a prison sentence of up to three years. What do we want? Gay rights. Where do we want them? Everywhere. In October, British human rights campaigner Peter Thatchell was detained by Qatari police for staging a protest in Doha to denounce the criminalization of the LGBTQ2 community. If a regime abuses its own people, subjects them to tyranny, uh, enacts and operates a police state, they have to be called out. And freedom of the press has continually been in the spotlight. Watch how this reporter is threatened by Qatari officials during a live report. Uh, we are live on Danish television. Uh, mister, you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. This is the uh, accreditation. Okay. We can film anywhere we want. Okay. There are only, of course... No, 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 we don't need permit. Yeah. No, no, but, 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 no, but listen, but listen, but, listen, but, listen, but listen. you can break the camera. You want to break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by, 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 by smashing the camera. They later apologized, saying it was a mistake. But the message was clear. Officials have the power to monitor the media. FIFA's president, Swiss-born Gianni Infantino, has lashed out at Western criticism of Qatar's human rights record. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years, 
around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. Human rights groups say that statement is dismissive. Amnesty International is calling on Soccer Canada to commit to a $440 million U.S. workers' compensation fund for laborers and families who suffered harms in the lead-up to the Qatar World Cup, as have a dozen soccer associations, including the Americans, French, and British. But Amnesty insists Soccer Canada has shown a deafening silence on the issue. We've continued to make the ask of our governing body and ask them, along with the Qatari government, to continue to do the work to make the change. Earl Cochran is the new General Secretary of Canada Soccer. So for those people who say that Canada Soccer is punting it off to FIFA and, and Qatar, what do you say to those people? It's up to them to make those decisions with the Qatari government. For all of Qatar's messaging about playing by its rules, enforcement, at least in areas filled with tourists, appears to be relaxed as we noticed in Doha's oldest market when some fans flouted local rules and customs. And a ban on unmarried women and men cohabitating has been suspended to allow visitors and tourists to stay together in hotel rooms for the World Cup. What happens once this tournament concludes will shape Qatar's future. It's a country with vast oil deposits and tremendous wealth that is pushing for increased influence not just in the Arab world, but globally. You have the infrastructure and, and really the, the nation building and the, and the city making that, that happened around this World Cup. Alexandra Shalat is the director of World Cup Legacy at Qatar Foundation. Do you think that the criticism is warranted? Actually, you have seen development, you have seen evolution in what that looks like. And they had a huge event to put on and very little labor, right? And they had to look at what that meant and they started off doing it and they corrected themselves along the way. And I think every country has that journey, right? None of us, in wherever we're from, you're from Canada, I'm from the US, none of us have, as countries, had any kind of journey that didn't have you know, those hiccups and those issues along the way. And I think um, whether it's warranted or not, you can see that Qatar is trying. But if Qatar wants to host more large-scale events like the World Cup, the country should expect continued international pressure to change. Now I do babysitting, and I have two more clients, and I do teach English to Arabic kids. Mary, the domestic worker from Kenya, is also looking ahead to her future. She has two young boys in Kenya. Mary's mom is taking care of them. She found new work with a Canadian family, paying her $1,200 Canadian a month, triple what she used to earn. Now I have a better pay, and I bought land. I saved and I bought land and I'm building a house now for my kids. She has since moved on, but the pay was enough for a new house back home. My dream is to better myself and to have a good future for me and my kids and to be able to take care of them whenever they need me and take care of my family back home. There are hundreds of thousands of others who aren't as fortunate. Whether Qatar can give them the dignity they are entitled to long-term will largely be determined by what parts of its past it is willing to release and what new ideals it can embrace. FIFA President Gianni Infantino has accused critics of Qatar's human rights record of hypocrisy and racism. In a bizarre speech, Infantino suggested that he knows what it's like to be Arab, gay, disabled and a migrant worker 
because he says as a child, he was bullied for having red hair and freckles. Welcome back. For decades, Canadian soccer fans have worn the jerseys of other nations during the World Cup, and that's because there was no Canadian team to cheer for. But all that changed this time around. Canada's national men's team qualified for the first time since 1986, and the men who make up this extraordinary team come from fascinating and diverse backgrounds. Young stars and last-chance veterans have had to overcome remarkable challenges to make it here. W5 partnered with TSN to tell their stories. You know how they say, behind the rain, the sun comes. And that's how I look at the life. After bad weather, good weather comes. Here in Serbia, there are uh, three or four athletes who are icons. You have uh, Djokovic, Jokic, and you have Milan Borja. It's late May in Belgrade, and Canadian international Milan Borjan is the starting goalkeeper for Red Star, with a Serbian league title on the line. I must say that uh, he's uh, one of the best goalkeepers in, in Europe. He brings uh, Red Star uh, many important victories. Despite playing in 60 caps for his adopted home of Canada, Serbia is where Milan has become a household name. Red Star uh, have very good results in the last five years. We play in uh, Europe in Champions League. Brody! Milan Borjan has about 70% influence on that result, yes. People love him very much. Little kids, they adore him. That emotions, that love towards the club, that energy that fans bring to the stadium, it's something that you cannot explain. So whenever I go from there to Canada and coming back, I'm always in a positive atmosphere. It's, you know, it's circling around me. And considering Milan's turbulent formative years, his positivity is remarkable. Milan was born in 1987 in Kinin, Yugoslavia, present-day Croatia. He was very energetic. He loved to make people laugh, even today. I mean, if you meet him, he's gonna make you laugh. It was nice to live there, you know. I had a lot of friends, a lot of family. You know, my dad has a business. It was, it was really, really good life, good life. The fragile peace in Yugoslavia is more fragile than ever. And the president is warning his people to be prepared for war. You go to kindergarten and then it just at once, boom, you got to leave fast, you know, because, you know, the bombs are coming. 
Yeah, my dad and my mom, they grabbed me and my sister and just, you know, started leaving, you know, in the car. During the early 1990s, Yugoslavia broke apart into six republics. The war forced the Boreans to flee Croatia for safety in Belgrade, the capital of Serbia. Serb and the Croat army were really fighting and lots of civilians were killed. I mean, it, it was not the war uh, between armies. It was uh, war for power and uh, ethnic dominance. I wouldn't like to speak too much about that time. It's painful. It can stay in the past. Then in 1999, NATO launched an aerial campaign against Serbia for being an aggressor in conflicts within the province of Kosovo. A great deal of fear. Uh, the air raid sirens have sounded. The sounds of bombs can be heard. Oh, it was crazy. You know, you just hear the siren, and you know you have to go under the ground. Because, you know, NATO was throwing bombs, then, you know, trying to hit the bridges, most important buildings in, in Belgrade. A lot of kids lost their lives, you know? Every building, they have underground bunker. And we was uh, underground 72 days. It's painful to, uh, to talk about that. This is the building when we came from Knin. It was a lot of people in a small apartment. <laughs> This is a very emotional moment right now for me. It was crowded. A lot of people were sleeping on the floor. But we, we managed for a couple of weeks to live nicely. It's a difficult time. War changes a lot of things. The Boreans immigrated to Canada in 2000. First living in Winnipeg, before permanently settling in Hamilton. Milan was only 13 when he began helping with the family's new business. My parents came here with nothing. My parents didn't have anyone. So for them going to a job, they had to bring us. So we were part of it. He was cleaning a office space. It was a huge office space. So me, my mother, my father, and my sister, we, we were all together going there. You're like, oh, I have to go clean. But at the end of the day, you learn that it's not just cleaning. It's having that responsibility that you have to get something done. That's just how it was. But it was on the pitch with his father where Milan put in the most work. As a youth, Milan played in Argentina before returning to Serbia to start his professional career. But his heart remained in Canada. Then in 2010, he faced a choice that would chart a course for the rest of his life. Milan is a representative of Serbia and Montenegro. 
You know, I called my dad, I'm like, dad, listen, they're gonna call me for a Serbian national team. Around seven o'clock at night, I'm leaving my apartment and my phone is ringing. I look up, plus one, nine, zero, five. Go accept, I'm like, hello, and hello, and he goes, hello, this is Steven Hart, coach of the Canadian national men's team. I call my dad right away after that. I'm like, dad, what should I do, you know? And he goes to me, just do what your heart tells you. Somebody helped you come to their country, gave you everything, gave you a new life. You know, how can you return that to them? And the only way I can return that is playing for Team Canada. I called Steven and I said, I accept to play for Canada. Now 35, Milan has lived most of his life outside of Canada. But as the years march forward, his love for Canada has only grown stronger. He keeps saying, I just, I want to repay Canada for what it gave to my family. This is how you leave your heart for this shirt. Not because we're a team, we're brothers. We're one big family. Let's go get it! For him to choose Canada, it's literally how he feels, and that's what he's gonna give you. Canada gave it to us new life. Dala nam je novu snagu da živimo. U onom momentu da tim smo na neki način htjeli da budemo zahvalni ovoj državi koja nam je pomogla. This is the moment the country has waited for. Canada gave us an opportunity. They opened their arms for us, you know. They hugged us, saying, "Hey guys, you guys gonna be okay." will give you an opportunity to live nicely, you know? It's incredible. It's unbelievable. What does Atiba Hutchinson mean to this national team program? He's the gold standard. He's the leader. He embodies, I think, everything that this country is about. He's one of the best players Canada's ever produced. His humility, his grace, his presence, but his fierceness. One of the most underrated Canadian sports stars in the history of this country. Not only do I want to succeed for myself, my family, my country, but I want to succeed for Atiba. Atiba is more than just the best men's European soccer player ever for Canada. He might be the best person to ever have put on this jersey. The streets of Istanbul come alive. Turkish league giants Besiktas are a local powerhouse, and their ravenous fan base elevate their star players to folk heroes. 
including midfielder Atiba Hutchinson. Atiba might be relatively unknown back home in Canada, but not in Turkey. For most of the people, Atiba is he's like a symbol, he's like a legend for, for Beşiktaş fans. When it comes to sportsmanship, Atiba is giving them a great example. Most of the kids consider him as a role model. It's, it's quite difficult to achieve this in, in Turkey. The people, the fans there, they really took me in. You get that, that kind of love and that kind of treatment, you really want to give that much more. This is where Atiba learned to become a leader, well before earning the captain's armband for Canada's national squad. Atiba is, is, is a player you can always count on. You know, he, when you need him at the most difficult times, he will be there. He's 39 now. Every single training, like he's trying to be the best he can. A good leader should know how to handle pressure and how to take pressure out of his, his teammates. And Atiba is great at doing this. Atiba grew up in Brampton, the son of soccer-loving Trinidadian immigrants. He immediately excelled on the pitch. He was outstanding at six years old. Six, seven, eight. Nine, ten, he was like, he's going places. You know, he's going to go make it on big teams. That's when things really took off for me. I really enjoyed those moments. I had the love right away as soon as I started playing. I tell him, like, uh, I would like him to play for Canada. And he had no doubt that he would he wanted to play for Canada. You know, then that's what happens. The 39-year-old has enjoyed an overlooked, yet highly successful career in European soccer, which has complemented his national team play. 2016 Men's Player of the Year and Turkish Superliga Champion, Atiba Hutchinson. Atiba first played internationally for Canada in 2004 and has seen many days of frustration along the way. How would you describe kind of the state of the, the national program when you were young, getting into it? Yeah, um, it was hard. Set the stage. Why is this game against Honduras so important? Course of the next 90 minutes will determine Canada's fate in this World Cup qualifying cycle. We needed just one point to get through to the next round, and that was something in our heads. Maybe, yeah, we got off to you know, a really bad start. Honduras has scored right away. Jerry Bankson. Oh my goodness! And it's 3 0. Martinez! This is becoming ugly very, very quickly. 
everything they did, you know, worked out in their favor, and everything we did was against us. Across, my goodness. Martinez curls one. <laughs> Make it in a half a dozen. It's six nothing. At that point, your your heads are down. You don't really know what to say. It's not losing that's the issue. It's how you lose sometimes. The hardest defeat of of our careers. It's a loss of historic proportions, eight to one. Remember how you felt coming walking off the pitch after that game? I remember, yeah, I remember clearly. Like, I mean, you definitely feel like you've let a whole nation down. Despite the lean years to come, Atiba remained loyal to the Canadian program until getting second thoughts as the 2022 World Cup cycle began. At that time, if I had been talking to you about, you know, looking forward with Canada soccer, could you have seen a future for yourself? Uh, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I really believed that it was, it was going to be, you know, hard to, to put Canada back in, in the right place. He wanted, like, to, to give up, you know, with the national team. And I think it's John Herdman who was the one who called him and talked to him and tell him that he need him. And the conversation was just... You've waited all your life for this moment. We're going to make this happen, but I can't do it without you. This country, this team needs you now more than ever, ever before. It was an important call for me because it really pushed me on and, and you know, gave me that confidence, you know, to have a, a coach that still believes in me at that age to, to be involved with the national team. Atiba was trusted with the captaincy. Legend of Atiba Hutchinson continues to grow. <laughs> and that belief was passed forward to a new generation of Canadian stars. Goal! Alfonso Davies, are you kidding me? It's the Iceman in the hot, hot heat of San Salvador. Atiba has now played more international games than any man in Canadian history, all the while being a consistent, reliable leader. It's mostly just, you know, the, the effort that I try to give on the pitch, you know, with the work ethic. You know, I want to you know, fight and, and give everything I can for, you know, my, my teammates. Benjamin Button, you know, he's like fine wine. He's, what he's doing, it should be studied. He lays the foundation for the new Canadians to remind them of, about what this country is, what it's about. It means a lot. It's, it's, it's a truly a big honor. You know, his journey has been truly incredible. He's our guy. He's the guy. You know, he's, he's seen it all. He's been through so many cycles. For him to still be here at his age and to have this level, you know, it's, it's amazing to see. We're lucky as a nation. We're lucky as a country, as a team, to have him as our captain. I'm sure we we all felt that, you know, maybe that moment wouldn't have come for me, especially when I started getting older and 
just to get that, you know, that bit of success and, you know, to help uh, be a part of, of having Canada qualify for a World Cup right at the end of my career is it's really a dream come true. Eight months before your first call up, you were unemployed. I didn't have a professional contract at the time. I was trying to get one. I was unemployed, basically. I was not a professional footballer. And then I get to a national team. Yeah, it's shocking. Here he is in alone! Top of the net! It's Ismail Kone! Oh, Canada! Oh, baby, what a goal! I'll say I'm a late bloomer. Never been to any camp in the youth. Never been to nothing. It's a chance for Kone! Ismail Kone with a goal! I always trust my work and I always knew this was the path that I wanted for myself. You know when you're a kid and you dream of whatever comes to your mind, this is where I'm at right now. I grew up in Ivory Coast. This is where I grew up for seven years of my life. This is when I started to play football, when I was able to run. It's a big thing down there, and I think all around Ivory Coast is really like a religion. I was hearing about Canada, and my friend was here also. She said, oh, it's a good country, so you can come and you can be comfortable here. I want to give to my son a good opportunity for his life. The first class here is Jasmine. When I came to Canada at first, there wasn't um, snow yet because I came in June. And then later on in the year, it gets snowy, but I didn't know that. When the first snow came out, I wanted to get a snowball. And I made my snowball and I put it in a cup, but I brought it inside with me. But I didn't know snow was gonna melt at that time. So I came back and it was all water. And I told my mom what was going on. Like I was a bit, I was sad and like my snowball was gone. This is my first memory I could say of Canada. Came here, all I wanted to do is play football. I was coming from another country, so I didn't have no friends, so I was playing by myself. And then by that time, I made a couple of friends and started playing with them. The moment I saw him with the first touch on the ball, I knew this kid had something different. As a teenager, Ismail joined the Saint Laurent Soccer Club, and his skill soon caught the eyes of coaches at the Montreal Impact Youth Academy. First time I tried out, I was 13. They took me in, they said, we want you in, and then after they said, uh, they didn't want to bring me in because of my grades. Well, good enough. Second time, I think it was U15. I got invited. At this time, I think they just didn't want to take me. It was really hard on him. He just couldn't understand, because to him, his performance, everything was great, but I keep telling him, it's just a matter of time. After two failed attempts, Ismail got another tryout with the Impact Youth Academy in 2019. The third time, I thought I was going in, but at the end, I ended up not going. It's about timing. I told him, doesn't matter, work hard. Someday you're gonna work for you. Maybe if it's not Impact, you're gonna find another thing in there somewhere. All those experience taught me a lesson, and I think I always trust my work. I always trust that I could be at this level one day. He told me, I want to do it for my mom. As a kid to really start thinking of that, it was really amazing. 
She's a single parent and she was the only one that raised me, so it's difficult and it's a risk and it's tough. She's a strong woman and this is why I'm thankful because it's at the end of the day, we, it's only us two. Three tryouts with the impact, three rejections. Yet Ismail continued to work at his craft. And later in 2019, he and his Laurent teammates played for an under-17 national championship. The national championship, it's filmed, right? So I knew that if I would go to the competition, I would be able to get footage and then make a quick highlight of myself. But yeah, this video was the turning point, I think, to the next level, the biggest part of my career. After he pulled that video on social media and everything, I guess people started noticing. After a brief stint training in Belgium, Ismail joined CF Montreal in the fall of 2021. He stepped onto the pitch with the team for the first time this past February and made an immediate impression. Arriving there, Kone! And Ismail Kone on his debut! It's a bit crazy to say. It took them multiple years to finally bring me into the structure. A 20-year-old who only made his debut for Montreal back in February gets the goal to give them the lead in round one. All the hardships that he's faced along the way only fueled him more and gave him more uh, ambition to want to get to that end goal and he proved them all wrong. They gave me the chance to prove myself and to show what type of player I am. This is my job now, but it's more of it's my passion. Ismail's rapid ascension continued in April. After only four professional games, he was called to the national team and got his first cap for Canada. It was uh, unexpected, I have to say mind-blowing. It's really crazy. <laughs> it's crazy to the fact that like, we knew he would go far, but at this pace, we can't believe it. I never experienced how the guys sing the national anthem. I see it on TV, but when you're like this, you experience it. And they're all singing loudly and proudly and with passion, and you're like, wow. It's every kid's dream, all of us, to be there, and he's the one kid in Quebec who got that dream, so to actually be living that is so surreal. What a way to score your first Canada goal in style. I'm very proud of my son because he's playing for the big country of Canada and it's not everybody who can play at this place. Today I realized the, the risk that she took and uh, the chance that she gave me to have a new life and can only be grateful and I thank her every day to uh, give me this chance. What's your message to other players mm -hmm. who are in the same boat, who are told, you know, you're not good enough for this club or you're not there yet? I would say to them, I wasn't the one going to Team Canada's camp, to go into the World Cup camp, going to the academy. I was the one that stayed true to myself and just knew that I was able to do it. Canada's 26-man roster includes seven first-generation immigrants. That's about the same percentage as Canada's population. You've been listening to CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. 